For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. This episode is brought to you by MJ.com and their brand new medical platform that they're rolling out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Have you visited MJ.com? MJ.com is the most trusted information source for all things cannabis. Whether you're a medical marijuana patient looking to find the right doctor or a consumer looking for exclusive savings at your favorite dispensary, MJ.com can bring you your favorite products right to your front door. Or maybe you're just a lover of the cannabis culture looking for the best original articles, interviews, podcasts, and educational information. MJ.com is the number one place to find everything you need. Visit MJ.com today. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. You're here because you want to know more about cannabis as medicine, and you know this is the place to be so that you can learn as much as possible from experts in the field. And if you are getting a lot of value out of this show, I want you to head over to Apple or Stitcher or Overcast or wherever it is that you're listening to this and give me a rating. Let me know what you think. Shoot me an email, Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com. I'd love to hear from you. Tell me about guests that you think should be on the show. Tell me if you think you're a guest that needs to be on the show. Let me know how I can improve so I can keep bringing you amazing guests like I am going to be able to share with you this week. I have two, not just one incredible guest, but two very well-respected, amazing doctors, Dr. Kevin P. Hill and Dr. Samoon Ahmad. They are extremely well-respected in the field, and they came on the show so they could talk about their new book, Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook. It is one of the very first ever textbooks on the subject, hoping to be able to educate physicians, educate patients, and educate anybody that has questions about this medicine. It was an amazing interview. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to bring them back for a part two because I barely got to get into everything that I wanted to discuss with them. So please enjoy this episode with Drs. Hill and Ahmad. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today I'm very happy to bring you two special guests, Dr. Samoon Ahmad and Dr. Kevin Hill, both MDs. And here's their background. Dr. Ahmad is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and serves as unit chief of Bellevue Medical Center's inpatient unit. A practicing physician for over 25 years, Dr. Ahmad has dedicated his professional life to helping individuals find balance in their mental and physical well-being. He founded the Integrative Center for Wellness to execute his innovative vision of incorporating psychiatric treatments with nutritional therapies to emphasize wellness of both the body and the mind. He specializes in treating patients with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, stuttering, and weight management issues. Dr. Kevin Hill, my other guest on the show today, is Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He earned a Master's Degree in Health Science at Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at the Yale School of Medicine. He most commonly treats patients who have problems with alcohol, cannabis, or opioids and has been named one of Boston's top, Boston Magazine's top doctors for the past two years. He teaches medical students and physicians how to treat patients with addictions and treats professional athletes as well as airline pilots. The author of two books, uh, Marijuana, The Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Weed, and co-author of Medical Marijuana, A Clinical Handbook, which is why I have both doctors here today. 
Dr. Hill's research includes the development of medications to treat cannabis use disorder, as well as cannabis policy, and he has published widely on these topics. And in 2018, he was awarded a grant to summarize the research on the therapeutic use of cannabis, and he presented his findings at the World Health Organization's Expert Committee on Drug Dependence in Geneva, Switzerland. Dr. Ahmad, Dr. Hill, thank you so very much for being on the show today. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Thanks thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. So you have created the very first textbook that I know of, at least, for medical cannabis. And I'd love to hear from both of you, what gave you the idea to move forward on this project? Let's start with Dr. Ahmad. Okay. I'll I'll give you my viewpoint. Um, I think uh, it's been for years in the making in some ways, but mentally, I should say. Uh, part of that is driven by the fact that I think over a period of time working at Bellevue Hospital, being exposed to population of severe persistent mental illness, where 60 to 70% of the patients have some uh, comorbidity of substance use in some shape or form. And I think from the time that I was in medical school and as a resident, things have obviously evolved how we see you know, drug use, substance use. Uh, and I, what I learned is there are substances and there are substances. You need to sort of make a distinction and you need to understand how they are used, what they are used for, how they impact one's life overall, and what is uh, how people function overall in their life. And also being exposed to a population which was in the midst of opioid crisis in some ways that I was witnessing, many of these people were sort of in, in a narrow box where they were being viewed through a lens where everything was falling that, you know, words that are being used, how we classify people who have substance use problems um, overall. And I started to sort of do some due diligence along the way. And I was just amazed at how confusing it was to look at where science is and where culture, society, and other aspects and how we believe in some ways. Um, and the idea came, you know, sort of evolved that how do I make sense of what are the, what is the scientific data? And there was a, as I saw, a lot of a complete lack of what I would call studies, double blind controls. And that is secondary to the fact that it's a schedule one drug. You really cannot do anything about it. It's a sort of a very uh, circular logic, which is, well, you can't, really prescribe, recommend, do anything about it because it's a schedule one drug. And because it's a schedule one drug, you can't do anything about it. You can't do clinical trials, you can't do. And it's like, how do you make sense of this? And uh, what I realized as I read through it, and I think we are just on a parallel path to understand, I think it'll make sense for me to say this, that how science and medicine is impacted and what, how, what we do, by politics, by culture and society, and how those things can influence the decisions of how we conduct studies, how we look at the merit of the scientific data uh, overall. And so I thought we really need to sort of look through the fog and come up with a book, a textbook, where we have sort of a historical perspective on cannabis to understand where it comes from, look at some regulations, look at the history of the opium crisis, look at the cannabis evolution, look at how we have in the last few years, the Controlled Substance Act, the Marijuana Tax Act, and then over the years, the evolution of medicinal cannabis programs, recreational and this, and what are the impact on psychiatric comorbidities? And that's where it was like, I need somebody who's really can walk that fine line and balance with me in this. And I found Kevin, and it's probably the, one of the best decisions to have him as co-author on that, uh, of somebody who has looked at, I think, and his expertise of walking that line of seeing people at their worst, and at the same time being able to say where it's required and where it's needed clinically in that way. So that's my you know, take on how I saw the evolution of this book. That's fantastic. So thank you for that. So that's perfect lead in for you, Dr. Hill. And yes, yes, it is. Did, so Matthew, I, I would say as somebody who is in this space, I think you know that this is a, a very polarizing debate. So I've been in the middle of this debate for a number of years. And I think where I 
have carved in a niche in a way is, is being somebody who tries to be balanced on it. So again, you know, I had my clinic yesterday afternoon and in the course of a clinic, I will see somebody who has a problem with cannabis using multiple times a day, every day, problems in work, school and relationships. But in the next hour, I might see somebody who might be a little older, chronic back pain, let's say they've tried multiple medications, multiple injections, and they're interested in using cannabinoids to try to treat their chronic pain. There aren't many people who do that. As, as I'm sure you're aware, most people take a stance, either pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis. And what I've found uh, coming from a place originally where I was treating solely patients who had cannabis use disorder, but what I found in looking at the evidence is really that the answers are often in the middle. We really don't know uh, as much as we'd like to know, and we're learning more about the therapeutic use of cannabinoids. And so I've tried to educate doctors for a number of years, continuing medical education efforts and things like that, because doctors are clamoring for help and information on this topic. And so I've written a few uh, papers in this area, and uh, you know, Samoon approached me and said that he was interested in trying to create a guidebook a way, you know, a, a comprehensive living document, actually. So not just a textbook, but also a corresponding website, cannabistextbook.com, where people can go and find whatever they need, the latest science on cannabinoids, the latest regulations in their particular state. If you're a physician and you're wondering about how to go about doing this from a practical perspective, that's a place you can go. So his enthusiasm sold me. I knew that there was a, a tremendous need for this. It was a daunting task. I think that had kept me from this kind of project for a few years, but there clearly was a need. And I think that uh, his enthusiasm for the, for the topic got me interested. And so we've really worked hard on this and we're proud of the product. As you should be. It's it is so deep in breadth and depth and just going over the, the classifications of drugs and where it might lie in comparison with other drugs and the morphology of the plant itself and the history and the history of regulations and everything state by state, even within the book, you go through everything. And, and I've made a point of looking at most places and the amount of things that you covered is truly tremendous. So I appreciate, I that. appreciate that. Can I, Matthew, can I just add though, that I think one of the other things that we wanted to do was create a document that was readable, that was digestible. And I think one of the problems that we physicians have, unfortunately, is that we don't do a good job communicating the science. We don't take the time to do it. When we do do it, uh, we don't write in very accessible ways. And what you'll find there are some textbooks that have tried to do this sort of thing, but oftentimes there's one editor and there are dozens of authors and every uh, chapter is different in terms of quality and depth. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to create one source that was primarily written. It was written by both of us. I mean, that's it. And so we've gone over, you know, we wrote chapters, we looked at each other's chapters and we tried to create a readable digestible source for clinicians, but also for the public. We recognize that because there's so little information on this topic and that we know from being clinicians that every day patients come in and they're either interested in cannabinoids or they're already taking them without the guidance of their physician. So we thought that it would be important to create something that everybody could read and that it was something that was written in, in an accessible way. I, I just, if you don't mind piggybacking on what you're just saying, I, I think when you talk about the, you know, how readable and the general public, I think that is probably one of the most important aspects. And the reason I emphasize that is that if you think about how people understand it's the general public, if they are able to understand the science and, you know, in a drummed down version overall and have a good sense, they are the people who are going to actually make a difference on a larger scale, whether it's the legislature or wherever it is, to have, in fact, changed the course of history, I would say, in either rescheduling, descheduling, however one may want to think about it. But not just the medical field can make that difference. It is actually, and, and, and if you think about how the Marijuana Tax Act and other acts took place, that was not just by doctors, really, 
didn't have much of a say. It was the society as such at large, which was able to actually steer the complete thought process from one extreme to the other. And I think, as Kevin said, this cannabis textbook.com, which is what I call as a living document, uh, which will be updated frequently uh, as soon as state regulations change, as soon as new data comes up, new studies come up, new things, because people can't wait for the next edition. People need to have this information constantly at, at their disposal so they are abreast of the information. And that's our goal with it. Yeah, that's so true, because that's such a, a massive issue that's happening right now. As you mentioned, Dr. Ahmad, they, the problem with studies and not having access to studies and things that aren't ne- necessarily FDA approved and so much anecdotal evidence as a rescheduling, descheduling, whatever may happen in the coming years, there is going to be so many studies coming to the forefront. And to have a living document like you have created is so necessary because this textbook can only go so far. So I'd like to dive in a little bit. And so you mentioned that you tried to keep it readable for the layperson. And, and I learned a new word, which was fun for me, was, uh, uh, where is it? Pharmacodynamics and how the, the drug actually interacts with the body. And within that realm is also knowledge about the endocannabinoid system. And you being physicians and going through med school, I'm sure that you didn't learn about the ECS in med school. And this is such an important topic just to know about our own bodies and its own inner workings. And how how do you propose keeping this education alive for physicians that may not have any knowledge of the ECS prior to coming across something like your book? You know, as I said to you earlier, you're absolutely right in saying that as a medical student, sort of shut these things are something that you shut off you may just hear about it but it's not something a deep dive in any shape or form and you really have to go out on a limb to search for this information and this and i'm hoping that you know with this textbook maybe we can ignite some enthusiasm in the medical field as such and as kevin said you know there's so much teaching in terms of maybe this can steer us into some educational programs. It will help clinicians to understand how important endocannabinoid system is because it's not just about the cannabinoids. They influence the dopamine, the glutamate, the serotonin, all other systems which are so essential to understanding and such a complex. And every day there is a new paper or something that we find out uh, about this. So you're absolutely you know, correct in saying that this is just the tip of the iceberg right now where we are. Uh, And hope, I would use the word hope here, is that we can take this to the next level, either being able to take it on a bigger platform in some ways, whether it's in an educational way, or being able to help our fellow clinicians where we can on our website continue to, in some ways, illustrative way, discuss more endocannabinoid system for people to understand. I, I, I think it really depends how it, it proceeds, but that's my hope. Yeah, and, and Dr. Hill, I imagine with the the range of patients that you're seeing from folks struggling with cannabis addiction to folks that are finding great use for the medicine, you must do a lot of education within that process. And, and could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that from a patient perspective, I think it's important to try to be as balanced as you can be because if patients come in, this is such a polarizing topic. Unfortunately, a lot of what people hear, both clinicians and patients, is either incomplete or just flat out wrong. And that's largely because the people who are having the loudest voices in the debate often have political skin in the game and they're trying to get you to vote one way or another. So they're either trying to make cannabis sound like it's the devil's drug or they're trying to make it sound like you know, it can treat every single uh, medical problem there is without any any side effects at all. So when a patient comes in to me and they're interested, let's say, in thinking about whether or not whole plant cannabis or cannabidiol might be helpful for their neuropathic pain, let's say, I want them to appreciate that I'm, I'm trying to be balanced on this, that this is something that like like opioids, right? There's a use for opioids, but there also are a lot of risks. And cannabis is similar in some ways. And certainly CBD cannabidiol has an even more favorable side effect profile. So these are all things that we talk about that 
these are options. And I think that it also gets in, you get into this uh, sort of concept where they may have tried to talk to other physicians about these things and quickly got a sense that their doctor uh, wasn't interested or was afraid of delving into this and approaching this. And, and as I say to patients, look, you need to be able to ask your doctor about treatments that you're interested in. And if they're not willing to have a sensible conversation with you about these things, you should find another doctor, right? I mean, so I think that's where it comes into play. And as, as Simone was saying, we're just trying to create a, a resource for clinicians where they can hopefully read a little bit about this and begin to say, you know what? This isn't the black box that I thought it was. I can do this. I can talk to my patients about this. I can counsel them thinking about whether or not cannabinoids may be helpful for them. Because I think clinicians make a lot of decisions about certain areas in medicine or psychiatry that they're not comfortable with. And uh, consciously or not, they steer those patients away. And we don't want that to happen, particularly because so many patients are interested. So many people are suffering and they're wondering, which is reasonable. They're wondering, hey, maybe these can help me. So we don't want clinicians to shut the door on those patients. Yeah, definitely. There's a certain level of cognitive bias that we all deal with, and we tend to like to stick with things that we're good at. No, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, in, in the chapter on oncology, in fact, that the numbers uh, that were quoted and we looked at was that majority of the times when you ask clinicians, who is the one bringing up the conversation? It's the patient. And when you ask who is asking the questions, in fact, 67 or 68% of the times, it wasn't the physician. It was actually the uh, patient who's bringing it up. So we are hoping that those physicians can feel now the comfort level, at least initiating conversation. As he said, said, well, it's not the devil's weed and neither it's on the other side. I, I need to really understand where my patient is coming from and how I can help this person the best possible way. Yeah. The, the objectivity of the book was what struck me maybe more than anything else. I mean, the content is obviously fantastic, but really writing that line of not being in that camp of saying, oh, this is this miracle drug that can cure everything and saying, oh, no, this isn't the devil's weed. You address the fact that there are a certain percentage of people that use this plant. They they abuse this plant and it can affect their work and it can affect their relationships. And also there's a number of places where we're seeing tremendous efficacy in a medical field. And so being able to address both those things is critical in a a very neutral sort of way. Right. I think that this service has been where, you know, we completely blocked that understanding and progressing of the research. And, you know, uh, I I have a quotation. In fact, I wanted to just to illustrate my point. So just in 1937, when the Marijuana Tax Act, when they said, I was amazed at AMA's, American Medical Association's foresight at that time to discuss and make this as a statement forever. And, and I, you know, if you don't mind, I'll just illustrate that point. It says, there is positively no evidence to indicate the abuse of cannabis as a medicinal agent or to show that its medicinal use is leading to the development of cannabis addiction. And moreover, it continues to say, cannabis at the present time is slightly used for medicinal purposes, but it would seem worthwhile while to maintain its status as a medical agent for such purposes as it now has. There is a possibility, here's the golden line, that a restudy of the drug by modern means may show other advantages to be derived from its medicinal use. That was the point they made in 1937. It's amazing. It's like it applies today. And we have lost those 50 years, five decades, you know, seven, six decades of not being able to do that. Yeah, it's incredible. We, we truly have. They gave us the blueprint and we lost it. Right. So now we're, we're right. finally getting to the point where we can start doing some real research on it. Um, so speaking of, I hope you don't mind. I wanted to get a little bit granular, if if you don't mind. Um, something that I found really interesting was about all the different receptors and endocannabinoids. And I'd been familiar with 2-AG and anandamide for quite some time, but 
you seem to find there's potentially 11 different endocannabinoids that we have within our system. Would, would you care to, to expound on some of those and what, what they may do and how they affect the body? You know, the, we know the two endocannabinoids that you just mentioned. The other ones, yes, they do affect receptors in terms of exactly how much and how, what they are doing and what their efficacy is. I think that's in this gray area, just like we have 140 phytocannabinoids for that matter, but we don't have as much information on those as well. So the majority of the studies that have been done, in fact, are on the 2-AG and the anandamide. And to look at their benefits and where they are working, whether it's in the central nervous system or in the immune system, that's how we have looked. The other ones are sort of a just a touch and go in terms of trying to understand. There is not a huge amount of wealth of information that we have our disposal to either claim that we can use it for this benefit or that benefit. I wish we were there. And that is my point, which is we curtail that research. If we were, you know, as, as I was pointing out that last time also, which was think of these as you play Scrabble. These are all those alphabets. And the more the alphabets, the more the words that you can make and to understand how they apply in clinical application overall. But we don't have an opportunity to really have that much time for us to actually put those and make all the words and try to understand those. And that's, that's where we are. And I think that's the limitation of our scientific knowledge at this stage. Yeah. And I think you went into that a little bit in the book as well, when uh, talking about the receptors and the commonly known, the CB1 and CB2 receptors, but there's all these other, uh, they, the G, G proteins that. Yeah. The orphan G protein receptor 55, which is sort of a, you know, you can use the word pseudo endocannabinoid. It, it's like, you know, we really don't know. There are other receptors. There is a, the transient receptor potential with a vanilloid system. That's another one that, uh, these uh, phytocannabinoids, endocannabinoids interact with indirectly. Was that trip V1? Was that? Say again? The trip V1? Trip V1, yes, correct. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And whether they can be considered, and at this point, a cannabinoid receptor is anyone's guess. I think the jury is still out on that. And it will take us a while to really see where, where we land on those. But definitely, these cannabinoids interact with those, and there are effects in fact, that you can see uh, in, on those interactions. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Hill? Yeah, I would say that we're just scratching the surface here. For example, cannabidiol itself, if you ask experts about the mechanism of action of, of CBD, you're going to get a lot of different answers. There are multiple receptors that CBD alone interacts with. Uh, you mentioned TRPV1. So, uh, to me, you know, as, as Samoon said, and, and as I think you alluded to earlier, we're talking about how the rate and scale of the research just has not kept pace with the interest. And we should be, given the intense interest, we should be further along. There are many reasons for that. I think uh, scheduling is one of them, but, uh, but also I think there are issues related to funding and who is or not funding the research at this point. And one of the things that I've said frequently is that there are many people who are profiting from cannabis and there are not that many people who are actually trying to advance the science. And, and so when you talk about uh, cannabinoids, Samoon just said, you've got 140, more than 140 cannabinoids in the plant. And yet we really only talk about two of them. So when you have such promise with those two, THC and CBD, why wouldn't we be looking with more fervor at the rest, and again, I'm sure in, in your other podcast, people have talked about the, the entourage effect and just the possibilities of these other cannabinoids and endocannabinoids. So, so there's a lot that needs to be done uh, that unfortunately I don't think is really moving ahead as quickly as it could. But then you also are introducing the, the idea from a patient perspective, what level of science really should be in place before patients use these cannabinoids. And there's a lot of uh, debate about that. We certainly would love to see more randomized controlled trials for a host of cannabinoids, but what we have to work with is limited. And so in the office, it often becomes 
a risk-benefit conversation, right? For and cannabidiol is a great example again. For cannabidiol, we really don't have as as many RCTs as we would like. We've got growing preclinical evidence, but then the question becomes: in with a patient in front of you who is suffering, is there enough potential benefit that outweighs the risk? And and oftentimes for CBD, I think there is more potential benefit because of the fact that fortunately cannabidiol is not habit forming. It has no abuse potential. The WHO uh, said that recently, fortunately. So, so there are different conversations that you can have about different cannabinoids and that speaks to the level of complexity. It also speaks to uh, the, the level of research, you know, where, where we are and where we ought to be. Absolutely. And that level of complexity is also striking about this plant, the, the 500 and some chemical constituents and um, something that has become very common in our parlance in the medical cannabis community is, you know, a sativa versus an indica. And I really enjoyed where you went to in your book and saying, well, no, this is a probably a ridiculous argument. This isn't, there isn't a sativa, there isn't an indica. It all depends on what the other minor phytocannabinoids are doing and what roles they play with the terpenes and Absolutely. Also flavonoids. And that, that was amazing to no, me. I, I was going you to could dive more into that. Yeah. yeah. I was going to actually mention that to you that, you know, uh, what uh, Kevin was saying, expanding on that. I mean, if you just move beyond the phytocannabinoids and you start thinking about the terpenes, the terpenoids, the flavonoids, the scrabble now is the, the words are now and the alphabets have now expanded exponentially at this stage where it's now become even more complex as to how you're going to formulate and understand. I mean, it's like every time, you know, it's like a, a, on a music when you're the equalizer, every time you move one, you're completely going to change the sound. And that is exactly, we don't even know how that would work. In, because we don't have the scientific knowledge or the data. I mean, there's so much how subjective experiences have led to the classification. Well, if, if it's a head high, it's a sativa. If it's a body high, it's an indica. And we, well, we, really, we, 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 it's very hard to, in classification from a scientific point of view to really uh, put, give merit to that. But you know what? If you go to a dispensary, that's what you're going to hear from most people as to how they are going to sell something to you. But there is no real data to really support such evidence uh, that we have. I would just also add that, that that also opens the door to another point of contention that we talk about in the book, which is that physicians, we want them to feel more educated on this topic. But where that needs to go is that physicians need to take a greater role in supervising the use of cannabinoids in their patients. And so uh, they may not be able to prescribe the three FDA approved cannabinoids, but if you're going to okay your patient to use whole plant cannabis, we need doctors to know more about how to do this, how to titrate the medicine, et cetera, rather than have them go into the dispensary and, you know, get uh, supervision from someone who's less qualified, frankly. And, and so, so we want doctors to know more. And then certainly that's also appropriate for follow-up too, right? If they know more about it, they can be better able to talk with patients about what has gone well, what hasn't gone well, what changes are needed. So, so there are many steps that we're hoping that docs are able to take as they become more educated. Right. And I think part of, you know, as they say, you have nothing to fear but the fear itself. But you have to talk about that fear. And you have to make and people understand about it that uh, it's not all good and all bad. And I think uh, Kevin has expanded on this, uh, which is the whole idea of especially during the adolescence and the impact of cannabis on the developing mind uh, in, in some ways. And I think to make the clinicians understand how that evolution, you, when you are using the cannabinoids, in what population you are using, what impact it has on you, how, the, how it impacts your uh, predisposition, uh, what people have underlying conditions. I think you, when we have to really go to that length for the clinicians to understand the fear, but yet develop the comfort level and have that balance. And that is, that's a tricky situation, to be honest, because, uh, you know, um, 
just to relate to why it's difficult is if you go back to the history of uh, uh, regulations and you think about how the jazz culture, the musicians, the hippie movement, the 60s revolution, how, how we have thought about cannabis has been mirrored in many ways through that, through that mirage or through that uh, understanding of, oh, that's what cannabis use does to you. So now to take people to the next stage, you say, yeah, those are, all of that is well and good. That's been there. But this is how where the science takes us next. And these are the balances and checks and balances that we have to think about. Yeah, it's so critical because in a lot of ways, we're like three-year-olds when we start talking about this subject. It's like, <laughs> THC good, CBD good, THC bad, CBD bad. You know, the intricacies of what this medicine is capable of is just lost on most people and you know body high head high and it's like well you know there are levels of intoxication that we have to deal with there are ways of mitigating that intoxication and and really having an overarching understanding of what this plant does and how it can possibly work and its constituents is so critical and and the book does an incredible job of diving into that really breaking down the most popular uh, terpenoids and and some of the more prominent phytocannabinoids and all that. And so when you were going through, I mean, each chapter by chapter, a different disease that and how it relates to it, how do, how were you going through that process of researching all that? It, was ex- it had to be extensive. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of it is related to some of the work that I've done previously. So really, I've been fortunate enough to have the time and the inclination to keep on top of the studies as much as possible. It's very difficult to do, um, but I've been doing this for a few years now. And so it's still a challenge. You know, fortunately, I have colleagues who will often send me links to papers and say, oh, did you see this? Because it's, it's really hard to keep up with it. But I think that for the last several years related to some other writing projects that I've had with the WHO, for example, you know, I've had to keep, keep on top of the literature and, and I've been able to see the progress that has been made. We definitely are making progress. I wish it were faster, but we definitely are making progress. And, and that speaks to some of the other issues that we talked about before, for example, scheduling of cannabis, right? So a schedule one substance, according to the DEA really means that it has addictive potential, which cannabis does, But number two, it also means that it has no medical value. And I feel that it's very difficult at this point when you look at what documents have been released by the World Health Organization. It's also an important report that came out in 2017 by National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, where they talked about the potentials of of cannabinoids and the levels of evidence. So it seems to me that if you are being objective about it, there is a growing body of evidence that suggests efficacy for cannabinoids outside of the FDA indications for the three cannabinoids that we have. And so it's hard to, if you're going to say that there, you know, there is growing evidence and these organizations are suggesting improved evidence for efficacy, that schedule one definition really doesn't fit as well as it is it once did, and it really is a major barrier. It doesn't mean that you can't do the research, but getting a Schedule One license is a hassle. I mean, I, I've done it, and having the DEA come to your institution and perform a survey of your pharmacy, I mean, that's not something that those places like. You know, they'd much rather you be researching. Can't you research something else? You know, can you look at heart disease? Can you look at diabetes, et cetera? So, uh, there are many reasons why we haven't made the progress that we really need to. And it seems that so many of the other drugs within the scheduling, the Controlled Substances Act, they tend to be one molecule. And you can really designate that classification for that one specific molecule. And cannabis is just a mess. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so many different constituents. And as physicians, where would you like to see a reclassification or, or descheduling or, or what is your opinion on that? Well, I, I think when you, so I think one step that has been made, fortunately, is that CBD has been rescheduled. So a couple of years back, one of the arguments that the anti-cannabis people would always say was, well, cannabis should remain schedule one, but we were fine with you studying the other cannabinoids. But then at that time, I was uh, doing a small clinical trial of cannabidiol at that time. And 
cannabidiol was schedule one. So you still had to jump through hoops in order to get the, the license and to get your institution to be able to accept the schedule one substance. So fortunately with the farm bill and the approval of uh, the, the FDA approved version of cannabidiol, which was approved in 2018, there has been progress made, but clearly, you know, you could find some place for the whole plant cannabis below schedule one that would open up a lot of research. So, you know, where, what, what schedule exactly we're talking about? I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm open to some flexibility there, but clearly schedule one is the, is the major barrier here and it really should be scheduled and people have talked about it. So I don't think that this is something that will happen imminently. Uh, the prior uh, presidential administration, if they weren't able to do it, certainly it's not going to happen during the current administration. So it's not, not something that I would be holding my breath for, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and Dr. Ma, do you see a place, uh, maybe a, a more specific schedule that you could see it landing? I think uh, it's very hard to say where it fits, whether it's two or three or, you know, four, because we don't have enough data to actually suggest where it put, like other molecules, we know where they are, but there is such insufficient, you know, uh, um, I would say research data that we can exactly put it. But I completely agree that it has to come, uh, you know, lower or high, however you want to go, than uh, Schedule 1. Uh, it's Otherwise, we are in that circular dive where we are not going to get out of this. I mean, you have to get a DA approved. You get an FDA improved. You get National Institute of Mental Health to approve and another an organization. Four organizations have to approve your research before you can move forward. And you can just imagine that even going through one is a nightmare. So walking through four major organizations to approve that, yes, go ahead and do this. Uh, and then on top of it, you know, there's only one real, uh, you know, University of Mississippi which allows, you know, where they, they have a farm where it grows. And all of us are, you know, who have to do the study really have to look forward to only one place. It's not like there are other places. So it's so narrow, the focus overall, that it's really impeded and made it, made it very hard for clinicians, I would say, who want to take the clinical research. I mean, we're dedicated people with lots of stuff going on and they have the backing, yes. But when you want to, study a plant which has 500, 400 elements in it, you need a lot more than just a small number of people doing that. It should be like, you know, every major academic institution should be able to do a clinical data and research and sort of come up with, and then we will have some consensus as to where we are. That's how I see it. And just to be thorough, so the three FDA approved cannabinoids that we have now, so dronabinol, which is pure THC, is schedule three. Nabilone, is schedule two. And then CBD, which prior to 2018 was one, now it's five. So I think with dronabinol THC being schedule three, I think that's probably the place where whole plant cannabis should probably fall. That makes a lot of sense because I recently looking at the DEA website, they have THC as a schedule one where there's already an FDA approved, two FDA approved drugs, right. <laughs> which are THC based that are schedule three. So the whole thing makes very little sense. Very little sense. And I said to you earlier, it's all politics. A lot of Yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to touch on just one thing that is on the, um, I don't know, I don't want to say converse side, but it is a side that the pro marijuana people don't ever really want to talk about. And that is the possibility for psychosis with high THC plants and especially with, with young males moving from teenage years into the early 20s. If you could address that, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I would just say that, uh, you know, the patients that I see, again, they're, they're skewed in some ways, right? If, if, you're not have, if you're a young person and you're not having a problem with cannabis, then you're probably not going to grace my doorway. So, you know, I want to put, put that out there. And so people who are addicted to cannabis, that's a small fraction of, of all users. But I will say this, that as the potency has gone up, so 60s, 70s, and 80s average THC content was 3 or 4%. The latest published date in 2019, average THC content in the United States, about 19%. And you know that we can easily go to the local 
uh, cannabis store or dispensary and get flour around 30%. So it's apples and oranges. And so what I've seen clinically, unfortunately, that there's a, a small fraction of patients, often with a family history of psychosis. So family history of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder with psychotic features, and that group's at high risk. So that's the group that if I have a chance to interact with them prior to any psychotic symptoms, uh, and I often do, I often are talking with families and young people who are starting to use cannabis and families concerned. And if they have that family history, then the level of risk is higher. The alarm bells are going off more than before. But what do we know? We, and, and clinically, we've seen this happen, unfortunately, right? So somebody with a family history, 15-year-old kid, never used cannabis before, starts using for a few months, and then boom, now they've got psychotic symptoms. My service might be consulted to, you know, to see them while they're in the hospital. They have psychotic symptoms. They're on an antipsychotic medicine, which is nasty business. And then the question becomes, you know, will they ever get back to baseline? And, and I followed a lot of these patients for many, many years, and I still follow many of them. And uh, the trajectory is not good, unfortunately. And the data say there, there are a number of really excellent observational studies that have shown pretty clearly that the odds ratio, the likelihood of developing a psychosis with this genetic predisposition, if you're using cannabis, probably regularly is anywhere from two to five times um, more likely. There was a, an excellent paper that, or there's a group in England that studies this and, and they put the odds ratio around five times more likely. And they, in England, they talk about skunk cannabis, high, they call it high potency cannabis. That's just average potency in the United States. So I think that speaks to the risk. So I always try to be very, very clear, right? On one hand, we've talked but during this hour about the tremendous medical potential. Uh, we've talked a little bit about areas where there might be efficacy. Um, but when we talk about risk, if we're talking to young people, we're talking to their parents, we want to be very clear that there is uh, an increased level of risk. So if you have a family history of these psychotic disorders, or you're not sure, because a lot of us really aren't clear about what our family histories are. Patients will often say to me, well, you know, I think my aunt on my mom's side had a nervous breakdown. You know, what does that mean? We really don't know. So, so we want to be clear that for young people, as uh, Samoon mentioned earlier, there just is a higher level of risk that brain's developing. We don't really know what their genetic makeup is. And so we want to be clear that that's a different kettle of fish compared to a 35-year-old patient who is struggling with, again, chronic pain or muscle spasticity or something like that. So we want to be very clear that there is a, a different, different groups there. And as you mentioned earlier, Matthew, unfortunately, a lot of clinicians don't want to make that distinction. It's easy. It's easy for me as an addiction psychiatrist. It's much easier for me just to say, hey, this is bad. This is a bad drug don't use it. Don't, you know, and, and a lot of my brethren do that, frankly. And those are the ones that I disagree with from time to time, unfortunately. So I think there, there definitely are, is clinical utility here, but I also want to be clear about what the risks are. And we try to do that in the book as well, right? We want to try to point out that even if you're going to use this medicinally, there are potential risks and probably not psychosis, if you're, you know, a 40, 50 year old patient, but what are the potential drug drug interactions that may occur? You know, what should we be looking for acutely when you're using cannabis? You know, should you be driving? Things like that. So we want to be upfront about it. And I think you talked about this earlier, Matthew, is that depending on where you stand in this debate, people are very selective about what they talk about, right? If you think that cannabis is a tremendous pharmaceutical, then you probably don't want to talk about the, the ways in which it may affect your ability to drive or the cognitive effects and things like that and vice versa. And that's unfortunate, I think, because if people cherry pick data and they don't paint a full picture, I think they lose credibility with a savvy patient who knows, you know, if they've done their own reading, well, wait a minute, this, this sounds too good to be true, they may say, or 
on the on the flip side, which is probably more common in my field, you know, they'll they don't want to talk to their doctor about it because they know their doctor doesn't believe in it, and that's a mistake as well. Because one of the things that I always tell patients is is that if you decide to do this, if you decide to use cannabidiol or cannabis uh, medicinally, your physician has to know about it. They have to. They have to know about it. And unfortunately, a lot of folks are using these medications without the supervision uh, of their physician. And that's where uh, are potentially, you know, a, a more or less safer compound like CBD can become dangerous, frankly, if it's not supervised appropriately. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So one last thing I was really curious about. So the book itself, it is Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook. And knowing all the history and some of the more racist connotations around the word marijuana, I was curious to see why you landed on calling it medical marijuana as opposed to medical cannabis. Uh, Because I think if you, one of the main reasons was that despite that the studies and the wording is more towards cannabis at this stage, in each state, if you look at the programs, None of them is called a cannabis program. It's a medical marijuana program. I think Utah might be the only one that's the medical cannabis program. But yeah, but most of them yeah, don't. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, yeah, medical marijuana. And we had actually, Kevin and I had discussions about this, which is cannabis, marijuana, you know, and this. And we ultimately decided that I think uh, for from a perspective where the general public, as well as how it's recognized and understood, uh, overall, so-called lingo that, you know, people are familiar with and they can grasp onto it and understand marijuana probably had, would be better, better suited to convey what we are trying to tell in the book. And that's why we picked, but Kevin can, you know, expand on his <laughs> yeah, point of view. I, I don't like the term uh, <laughs> marijuana, but now I've published two books that have the word in the title. And frankly, it's just because I want people to find what we've written. And if it's medical cannabis, a clinical handbook, fewer people are going to find it. That, that's really the, the end of the story for me. So in talking with publishers, they're pretty consistent that, you know, if, if you want people to find it, then that's the better term to use. But certainly from an academic perspective, uh, and if you, you know, if you notice when you read the chapters, know, we use the appropriate terminology. We want people to find the book, but once you open the book, I mean, we're using the, the appropriate terms. And, and I definitely, as you said, appropriately, there, there is uh, heavy derogatory connotations to that word. And, and so, you know, we want to be mindful about it. We want people to, and, and we address that in the book too, yeah. frankly. In fact, it's in the prologue and we, and in the preface, we mentioned that, that we understand the negative connotations and racial, how it's racially tinged in that way. And keeping that sensitivity and understanding that sensitivity, we are going to use this word so people can understand that. So we are very aware of it. We are very sensitive to it. We, are, we completely understand with this. And that is why the whole book illustrates the right terminology. But for people to sort of understand what the book is about, that's why we've used this. Because historically, that's how this word has been in this country. Thank you for that clarification. It's good for the listeners, for sure. All right, so we're coming up on the end of this hour, and I want to ask you both just my one final question. And so we'll start with you, Dr. Hill. What is the one thing that you would love to see change within the medical cannabis industry if you could see that one thing happen now? I'd like to see more stakeholders fund research. So I've done, uh, you know, I work with multiple companies and multiple organizations that I consult to. And we're moving forward on on many research fronts. Um, But what I've come to know as a result of this is that there are many, many uh, companies that, and states too, frankly, companies and states that are profiting wildly from cannabis. And they're not really contributing to the science, unfortunately. And when we talk about how the rate and scale has not kept pace with interest, I think that that would be a way to do that. And, and I understand why that is the case from a company perspective. If your CBD product is jumping off the shelf and you really haven't done randomized controlled trials, 
why would you want to, right? Why would you want to change that? I understand that. But if they're really interested in getting some of the answers that everyone says they're interested in, then that's what needs to, to happen. And similarly, from a state perspective, you know, we know from the tobacco settlements, et cetera, a lot of that money went to uh, repair bridges and things like that. But I think that similarly with cannabis, um, if states are going to profit in terms of tax money, uh, et cetera, then they really should contribute to the science too. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Mudd? You know, I will, I mean, that's partly what, what he said, but uh, what I want to, I think we really need to, at this point, incorporate this into starting at the medical student teaching level. This should become a major part of the curriculum so that our next generation of physicians understand the pros, the cons, their comfort level, and a good understanding of the basic science, historical perspective, and where to go. The more people are exposed, the more balanced and objective opinions are there, the more likely we are going to move forward and be able to make sense of, you know, if you think about, we have literally taken, you know, from a pharmaceutical to going back to our basics in some ways, psilocybin is being studied, MDMA is being studied, cannabis is being studied. And I think these have all been on the fringes. Nobody has ever. And that's why our comfort zone is not there as physicians, because we have never been exposed to these things. They have been sort of an unknown black box territory. Oh my God, no, if you have talk about that, that's way out of our league. We treat those things. We don't talk about those things. Uh, and I think that's where it needs to start. Uh, you know, uh, it's the kindergarten of medical school, so to speak, where we need to, and hoping that clinicians will take interest in this with the book and be able to sort of move forward and maybe the institutions will, who knows? I hope so. I hope so. Those are both fantastic answers. And uh, I know we're coming up on the end of the time here. I wish we had so much more. I know Dr. Abad, I wanted to get more into regulation and the history around that. And, and I wish you guys could see the notes that I have from your book. I, I mean, I barely scratched the surface of all the things I was hoping to talk well, about. I was coming back. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you're open to it, I would love to have you back on the show another time. And uh, thank you so much. Again, the book is Medical Marijuana, a clinical handbook. And when will it be released for the public? It is. It has been released. It came out on September 9th. Oh, great, great. Available. It's available on uh, cannabistextbook.com website. It's available on Amazon, uh, any of those places. Or one can get them. Yeah. Okay, cannabis t- cannabistextbook.com. Yes, that's the living document, which will, which, which will be updated periodically, frequently. So for general public, for clinicians, for state regulations, for cutting edge science, whatever the research papers are coming out, we will continue to update that constantly, consistently over a period of time. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. I I really appreciate your time. And and I hope that this book really reaches all the physicians and all the potential patients that it deserves to reach. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for the invite. It was great speaking and great discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to send a very special thank you out to Drs. Ahmad and Hill. They were incredible guests that shared with you their wisdom, and I can't wait to get them back on the show for more. We didn't even get a chance to dive into the topics around um, which diseases cannabis works best for. So plenty more to talk about. They were a wealth of information, and I'm just so grateful to be able to have them on this show. So if you haven't already, go over and give us a rating. And until next time, my friends, please stay healthy and enjoy yourselves. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening. Thank you.